Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Close, coming to you from the Great White North. I'm Michael Close, and I'm glad to have you with us. On this podcast, you'll hear interviews with magicians from around the planet. I try to ask questions designed to spark robust discussions, giving you information and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you enjoy these podcasts, I hope you'll stop by michaelclose.com and check out the products we have available. And now, let's get into today's podcast. My guest on Conversations with Close uh, today is an old friend and someone you certainly know. If not personally, then you certainly know him through some of the marvelous creations that he has given to the world of magic. My guest is Martin Lewis, and Martin has a brand new book that will be coming out in May, which will be an absolute delight to those of you who do stand-up magic and have a little bit of skill in the do-it-yourself department. There's stand-up, there's close-up. We'll be talking about the book uh, in some detail as we go through this, and also talking about Martin's background and uh, some of the people that he used to hang out with back in the golden days of the Magic Castle. So, Martin Lewis, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Michael. Um, so let's go back. Uh, there's an interesting thing about you is that you came to magic later than uh, uh, most. You didn't uh, really get involved to any extent until you were in your early 20s, even though your father was really one of the great magical creators uh, of all time, really, Eric Lewis. Uh, you were born in England, correct? That's right. Yes. And so uh, what was your, I mean, if magic wasn't of an interest to you, what career goals or what career ideas did you have? When I was, uh, when I left school, uh, I, I left school around 16. Um, I went to work uh, as a clicker in a leather factory, uh, cutting out leather clothing. Um, but my passion was racing motorcycles. And uh, I had me and uh, four friends used to build uh, motorcycles uh, for, for racing. Uh, when my family moved to the United States in 1968, uh, I moved with them and uh, I, I was 20 years old. And uh, for my 21st birthday, my dad took me to the Magic Castle. Now, I wasn't really big on my you know, having watched my dad, I thought magic was for kids, you know, um, uh, I wasn't too impressed with it. But uh, on that night, uh, September the 1st, 1968, uh, I went at 7.45, I went to the close-up gallery and saw Albert Goshman perform. And he absolutely blew me away. I had, I walked out there stunned and uh, asked my dad, uh, can I learn this? You know, what about this? Well, I'd like to know about this. And he was ready. He gave me some books and he gave me some advice. Um, and that's how it all started. Wow. So you have always had in your background, uh, I don't know if the right word is facility, but certainly a um, predilect, uh, what's the, I can't think of the right word, but uh, building things, working with your hands, working with tools and and putting things together has always been a part of your makeup then. Oh, yes. Dad had a, a, a large workshop in Northampton, our hometown. Uh, and I used to go into his workshop and build model airplanes. I actually built a, a guitar one time. Uh, in that. Wow. Uh, 
so yeah. Um, what was what prompted the move to the United States? My sister married an American serviceman, and uh, they moved to San Bernardino, which was where an Air Force base was. Uh, he was in the Air Force, and um, my mother went over to visit and found out my mother was a Red Cross nurse in England, and she found out that nurses were earning quite a bit more than she was on the national health in England ah. and wanted to stay. So she stayed, and then uh, about a year later, my dad and my brother and I came over, and that was the whole family. Wow. And, and you certainly have, couldn't have picked a more fortuitous time to be out in Southern California, really. I mean, those were the halcyon days of the Magic Castle, really. Just uh, I, There's never been a time like it with uh, Vernon and Jennings and Servan and Kuda Bucks, and just the list goes on and on of marvelous magicians out there. That's true. Um, how did you meet Harry Anderson? Uh, in the early 70s, I... I was living in San Francisco and working at the Magic Cellar, uh, which was a small magic club uh, underneath Earthquake Magoon's Jazz Club uh, there on Clay Street. And I was their resident magician. And I was, a, uh, I, at least I thought I was a big deal in San Francisco. Um, and I'd, um, I'd seen Harry Anderson performing down on Fisherman's Wharf, busking. Uh, doing some geeky stuff, pulling silks out of his mouth or whatever. Um, and he came into the, uh, to, to the magic uh, cellar. And uh, he, I'd just published a, a trick called Rung Again Watson, which was based on the story of the Seven Napoleons, uh, a Sherlock Holmes story. And in my routine, uh, there's seven Napoleon busts printed on playing cards. And you turn them over and they're all shattered except for one that contains the pearl. Um, so Harry had this move where he would hold the card above the table and snap it with his fingers. And the card would make a half turn and hit the table. And it looked as if he literally shattered the bust. Wow. So he came in and he said, oh, Mr. Lewis, I'm a big fan of yours. I've got this trick I'd like to show you. I'd, I'd, I recognized him, but we'd never met before. And uh, he started the trick and he got to the point where he's just about to do this wonderful move of his. And the bartender, Cedric Clute, says, oh, hey, Martin, can you do so? And I turned away from Harry and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 40 years later, he still remembered it and never forgave me. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Um, one of the things that is so enjoyable about the book is that you've scattered some great stories uh, in addition to uh, the wonderful material, um, including a great story about uh, Di Vernon and uh, Harry's pool table. Um, <laughs> this, of course, was when Harry was uh, in L.A. Um, and was had it. I guess, achieved a certain amount of success from his television appearances. Um, can you tell that story for us? Sure. Uh, <laughs> it's one of my favorite stories. Um, Harry had, uh, was over there with, I was there um, uh, and the professor. And uh, Harry's a genial host. He gave the professor a good uh, a Cuban cigar and a, a glass of cognac. 
uh, and we were playing pool and talking about uh, pool betches. And so um, Vernon says, oh, I, I, I'll show you a, a, a great bet with a pool table. So he walks over to the table. Now this, let me explain about Harry had just started out. He wasn't ultra rich and he spent a lot of money on this pool table. In fact, it was installed personally by Machine Gun Lou Butera, who was a very well-known pool player uh, who sold pool tables. Uh, and Harry was so proud of this. He brushed it every night. He had a cover for it. Um, and he had strict rules. Uh, no drinks on the, uh, on the table. Uh, no masse shots. Um, uh, and, you know, no cigarettes or ash, you know, balanced on the edge. So uh, Vernon goes over to the table uh, with a cigar in one hand and a, a glass of uh, cognac in the other hand. And the cognac is nice and chilled and it's the bottom of the glass is dripping with water. And Vernon goes to put the glass down on the felt on the table. And Harry from the other side of the table skims a coaster that hits the rail underneath the uh, glass and, and Vernon puts it right down on the coaster. He didn't even notice, but it was an amazing uh, shot on Harry's part. Um, he then uh, uh, puts a, his a pool ball into the center of the table and picks up uh, the uh, chalk, the chalk. And before Harry can say anything, he draws a circle around the center of the table with the chalk on the felt. So Harry looks at me and he mouths, if it was anyone else. Oh. So uh, now uh, <laughs> we've got this circle of chalk on the table and Vernon um, says, now the idea is, and he picks up a cue ball and puts it on the table. Uh, and as he does this, the ashes from his cigar fall off onto the table and he sees it and ineffectually tries to brush it off, but in effect, rubbing it into the felt. So now we've got uh, that. He picks up his cognac, has a drink, and sets it down right on the ash. So now it's not only ashy, but it's wet as well. The big circle in the middle. And Vernon says, the idea is, and he balanced a nickel on top of the, the pool ball in the center of the table. He says, you have to hit the cue ball and knock the, that ball out from the center, but the nickel must stay within the circle. And uh, nobody knew how you could possibly do that because inertia wouldn't work. You know, uh, if you hit that ball, the nickel just drops straight down. And Bernard said, this is how you do it, boys. And he did a masse shot. Again, the cue going down at 45 degree angle to the felt. This is probably the only if you ever see an old pool table and you see all these little tears in it they come from masse shots and uh vernon slammed this pool down the ball jumped up into the air landed on the nickel squirting it out of the circle and the tip of the pool cue stopped a fraction of an inch above the felt and vernon looked up smiled and said that's how you do it boys Oh, man, I could imagine Harry's consternation with that boy. Yeah, that he is... walked over 
he walked over and looked at the mess that Vernon had made on the with the ashes and the water. And I said, tell him Vernon did it. <laughs> yes, exactly. You might as well make a plaque for it and just, you know, <laughs> it, it just set it up that way. Oh, that's really funny. Um, your first love, then, uh, I guess I should explain that uh, seeing Albert Goshman is, of course, a, a, a sobering and exhilarating experience at the same time, because if you don't know what he's doing, uh, the first time you see Albert, he's going to kill you. He's just, and especially live. It's unfortunate that, you know, we talk about these great guys and, and the video is okay, but with Albert, you really had to be in the room at the table, watching him deal with these people to get the full effect of him. Absolutely. And, um, but certainly a great inspiration. So close-up magic was really your your first passion. Um, and, and so you were in L.A. for what What prompted you to move to uh, San Francisco? My dad uh, at that time was working for uh, Jim Simon, uh, Worth Magic out in the Valley. And uh, uh, Doc Albo, I don't know if you. Yes, I remember Doc. Uh, had a huge collection of magic. Uh, and especially focused on Okito stuff, uh, which is very elaborate uh, with the decals and the painting. Uh, and Doc Albo hired my dad to uh, move to San Fran- uh, to Oakland uh, and to restore and rebuild the collection. Oh. And, yeah. And so my dad moved up there. They built a beautiful workshop for him. Uh, and he did restoration work on a lot of the Okito stuff. My goodness. Uh, so uh, uh, I went up to visit and they said, oh, you know, there's a little uh, magic club just opened in San Francisco, the magic cellar. So we all trooped over there and I was uh, quite taken by it. And I got myself booked. Uh, I did some magic for uh, one of the owners, uh, Cedric Clute, and got myself booked as their resident magician. Uh, the, they had a magician. Pat Lakey was there for a while. But he had left, and so they was they didn't have a residence. So I, I got the job. So I moved up there, and uh, for four or five years, was the resident magician at the Magic Cellar. Wow! And was this like a like a five night a week kind of situation, or that kind yeah, of exactly? Thing? Yeah. Oh, great! Well, there's certainly nothing like having that kind of a gig to uh, to allow you to you know come in on a Monday with a semi good idea. And by Saturday, you have an idea if it's even going to work or not. I mean, it really is a proving ground. That's true. The, um, but then um, they put a small stage in. Am I right about that? And then, then you had to shift your focus a little bit, I guess. That's absolutely right. Uh, uh, I had learned some stage magic from the professor, from Vernon. Um the uh, dyeing the silks, uh, some work on the linking rings. Uh, my dad had showed me a few rope routines. Uh, and so with those three effects, they became my core act. And when I moved from the close-up corner to the stage. Um, and again, a trial by fire, I got to, um, uh, I, 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 I was sort of thrust in at the deep end. Yeah, absolutely. So quick story. Um uh, I was performing on stage. I, was, I used to close with the linking rings 
And uh, I'm halfway through the routine and I see that Harry Anderson is sitting in the front row. So uh, I get to a point where uh, I'm down to, uh, I've handed out the chain of three. I've got uh, two regular rings and the key. And uh, at the beginning of the routine, I promise that I'll hand all the rings out. Uh, and I hand the two regular rings and I hand the key ring to Harry. Who <laughs> completely had no idea. Uh, and I kept, went back to the stage and I said, now you have all the rings, please examine them. And Harry <laughs> did a, a couple of moves with them, you know, sliding it around in the circle. <laughs> uh, so so uh, afterwards he said, you took a big chance there. I went, no, I don't think so. I mean, oh, wow. You know, there's a, a Michael, a story about Michael Skinner. Skinner um, used to do magic shows at uh, schools and uh, he loved, he always asked the teacher, you know, he'd come in and do it for free because he just loved performing for the kids. But uh, his only payment was to have the kids draw pictures of the tricks that they liked best that they saw him do. So I was out visiting him one time and he's got this picture on his refrigerator and it's him doing the linking rings and a kid has drawn this and he's drawn the key ring. There's one of the rings with a big gap in it. Now, I don't know if it was just the kid never connected the circle when he drew it or what, but, but Michael thought that was uh, really, it's a really a great thing. Um, what from San Francisco, uh, how did you branch out into cruise ships then? Because that became a very important venue for you, did it not? Yes, it did. Um, uh, the, the Magic Cellar was underneath Earthquake Magoons, which was a traditional jazz club. Uh, and uh, the jazz band, Turk Murphy's Jazz Band, uh, was upstairs. And we got to be good friends with them because I was there for so long. And they got booked to work on a, uh, a P&O cruise on the Spirit of London. And they came back. So they had a, a substitute band going for them for a week. When they came back, they were just saying how wonderful this was, that what a great time they had on this cruise. So, of course, I said, who books that? Um, and they said, well, it's just a couple of blocks over. Uh, there's uh, uh, the P&O offices and the guy's name, uh, Pietro Corsi, it was at the time. So uh, the next day I go over to Pietro Corsi and I get somehow get into his office and talk to him. And I explain that I'm at the magic cellar and uh, uh, I work with Turk Murphy and uh, I'd like to, you know, see if there's a chance that they want a magician on the cruise. He he said, well, we'll come over. So they came over and they watched my act. Uh, At that point I had a 15 minute stage show. Uh, and they watched the show, and he said, we love you, we'd love to have you come on a cruise, can you do four 20-minute shows? And I said, no problem, I can do that. (laughs) And uh, so I got booked on a cruise, and I went on with my one 15-minute show and the Tarbell course. (laughs) And I literally put uh, four 20-minute shows together as we cruised. Oh, wow. Wow. And you were lucky, of course, at that time, there were only six volumes, I guess, because uh, <laughs> otherwise you have to hire a small person to carry your suitcase around with you. Well, that's, of course, that isn't, that's the first rule, isn't it? Say yes, and then figure it out later. Absolutely. Uh, um, it also the, says a lot about the Tarbell course. Oh, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, 
it's uh, what did I, I posted something on Facebook a while back about uh, those who uh, refuse to uh, remember the past will probably buy something they could have found in Tarbell or something like that. But yeah, I mean, there's just and especially for someone like you who can see the principle behind the thing without being I think the one thing that that drives uh, not drives people away, but people are reluctant to get into Tarbell and look at it is they only see the props and the presentation that, that uh, Harlan, you know, put in there for the trick without actually looking at understanding how the thing works and what else it could possibly be adapted to, to make it a more contemporary thing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you have to see past these dated presentations and, uh, and weird props and see what the effect is and uh and then adapt it but uh i'll say it was it was good enough for me because uh uh P&O cruises kept me working uh consistently for over 30 years so wow well there you go there you go um there's also a, an interesting was it a harlan tarbell connection that he sort of beat you to the cardiographic idea but not actually as a trick but more as a a, a, a gag or a stunt with the card yeah. rise yeah it's true I, I had no idea i mean i uh it was in one of his chalk talk books and uh, i hadn't read any of those so I, I didn't know i came up with the idea independently um but uh a few people who wanted to uh knock off my trick Said, "Oh, you, it's not yours. It belongs to Tarbell." Uh, but the the thing is that Tarbell actually drew a picture uh, of a deck of cards in a glass, and an actual card, an actual jumbo card, rise, rose up out of the, the uh. picture. And then he took that card and handed the card out to prove that it was real, a real card. So the effect was quite different uh, than. Mine, which of course I tear off the entire sheet, and the actual drawing uh, is is uh, one piece. Well, that's the thing that makes that uh, you know one of the most memorable moments uh, in is the fact that you are able to hand out an impossible object, uh, yeah. which is you know that's that's money in the bank for any performer, whether you're doing it in the stage version or whether you're doing it as a close-up version. But if you give somebody something like that to take home with them, they're, they're never going to throw it away. I'm sure they're going to hang on to it forever. Well, you know, I did, uh, uh, I, I have a close-up version of it uh, these days of the uh, card rise. And uh, I, on the cruises, I, if I'm sitting with a group of people at the table, I would perform the trick for them close up. And uh, I did it on, on one particular cruise. I handed, I tore off the piece and handed it to the uh, woman that I did it for. The next day, um, I'm walking past the uh, photographer's shop and her and her husband are coming out of the shop and they'd taken the, it in and had it framed. Wow. Uh, which I thought was very sweet. Um, and there's also, a great, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, and also uh, uh, a, a, a tribute to the effect itself. Well, you know, absolutely. It's um, the first time you see it. You can't. I don't remember when the first time was I saw it. It might have been on that Copperfield TV special. I don't recall, or or maybe I read it in. Uh, is it in the the first book? 
yes. Uh, it is. It, it, it is, but it was first published in MUM. Ah. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't have the details of it. Yeah. Moment, yeah. Uh, you know, it's... Um, it's 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 funny how those kind of things end up being such uh uh important calling cards for for you know generating future work or just word of mouth people talking about it uh i know when i was uh you know, i i'm not doing very much performing at this point in time but back in the day when i was doing the pothole trick all the time that was a trick that people never threw away they kept that card stuck it in their wallet and told their friends about it. And I had people who would come in having heard, you know, about this amazing trick because one of their buddies, you know, stuck it in their, in their pocket, um, in their wallet. I mean, Uh, Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, It certainly um, got me around the world. I I did, I've done it in a lot of different places. The only place I ended up not doing it was when we lived in Las Vegas because there's no potholes in Las Vegas. It never gets cold. <laughs> it never gets cold enough to uh, make potholes. And that story doesn't work as a past tense story. It actually has to be performed somewhere. So I went, I don't know how long I was in Vegas, 12 years without doing the trick. And then I realized that Mount Charleston is only 45 minutes away and it gets cold and snows and the roads are shit. So I could have just said I lived in my, I could have done it there. It never (laughs) occurred to me, never even occurred to me. So it's funny. Um, Speaking of funny, you are a funny guy. I mean, the patter that's, uh, you have great presentations. And uh, one of the things that's extraordinary is that you do give, uh, for the most, I would say for more than 95% of the things in the book, you give your full script of what you say as you present the thing. And you're, uh, 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 you have your own style, which I would say is a cross between witty and droll, but you're a funny guy. Was your dad funny? Uh, my dad had a very British sense of humor, uh, which uh, was maybe too dry for American taste. Um, but uh, I actually learned uh, or gained my my sense of humor, for, especially for presentations, uh, from working the comedy club circuits for a few years. Ah, yeah, that so, I didn't know you did. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, from uh, the early 80s, uh, for five or six years, I did the comedy club circuits, uh, staying in those horrible comedy condos. Yeah. Um, and I've worked with some of the very well-known uh, comedians of today, or of the time. Um, and they all gave me tips and, you know, uh, uh, helped me out. Uh, so I... I I learned the basics of humor from, uh, from again, uh, uh, trials by fire. Yeah, just paying attention to what was going on around you, I guess, huh? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, there's another great story you tell in the book uh, about being on cruise ships. Um, the, the title of the story is, um, what was it called? The, the SS uh, God's Waiting Room? Oh, <laughs> yeah. You tell that story. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I had a gag in my show uh, on the cruises where I would, um, uh, I had a little disposable camera. They had these little uh, cardboard cameras at that time. 
in my case. Now, uh, the uh, cruising in, I used to cruise a lot in Alaska. And in Alaska, you get an older group of people uh, cruising. And uh, uh, the, the gag was, you know, um, uh, you see old people on cruises, well, they send their parents to Alaska. Um, they, uh, uh, they get up early in the morning uh, for, a, for a tour somewhere. They uh, come back uh, and get ready and they have a big dinner with some glasses of wine. Um, and then they come in to see a show around 10 o'clock at night. And it's quite often you'll see few people in the front row fast asleep. So my gag was if I caught somebody asleep, I would stop the show. I would get my camera and hand it to somebody and say, get, get a picture. And I would go over to the sleeping person and put my arm around their shoulders, not actually touching them, uh, and get a picture taken. Uh, <laughs> and it, was, it got a good laugh. And I would, you know, follow it up by saying, you know, just another satisfied customer. <laughs> I like to get a picture. Um, so I did that one, one show. Uh, and normally the audience's reaction wakes the person up. But in this case, it didn't. So uh, I went on with my show and I finished uh, and the audience left. But the guy was still in the front row fast asleep. Um, so the uh, the night stewards come in to, to clean up the room and they go over to wake the guy up because they, they need to get him out of there. And uh, it turns out he wasn't asleep. Uh, he was dead. Uh, so uh, I have a photograph of me with a dead guy uh, with my arm around him and a big smile. Uh, it brings a new light to the phrase, I killed him. I killed him. <laughs> Martin Lewis knocking him dead for 30 years. I'll tell you. Oh. Boy, that's funny. So uh, tell me about the decision to um, put all this wonderful material into one book. I, 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 it's, when did you decide to, uh, to do that? Well, the uh, cruise ship business shut down in 2020, of course. When of course. Uh, yeah. So uh, I was all of a sudden out of work. Um, I did a few uh, local gigs, but pretty much out of work. So I've been meaning to write a book to gather all of the material that that has some sort of significance to me all in one place. That's that was my goal um, and to uh, to detail it properly rather than just, uh, you know, give you those abbreviated instructions. Um, so I tried to do it on the cruises, but, you know, uh, I only you only work a couple of nights a week, but uh, the, everybody's on holiday. Uh, the, so, do I want to go and sit in that uh, little little tiny claustrophobic cabin and peck away on my uh, computer, or sit by the pool with a pina colada? And it, the pool pretty much always won. <laughs> So I never really got anything accomplished uh, on the cruises, even though I had all sorts of time. However, 2020, now I don't have any excuses. And so that's when I started putting the book together. Uh, and and that was it. Yeah. And it's, um, it's wonderful that it's, that it's all there. Um, the, uh, you know, I used to, uh, 
talk about Billy McComb. And I was at a little gathering of magicians uh, one time at, at this one magician's house. We were talking about Billy. And I said, well, I'll tell you something about Billy. I said, if you look at the things he's published, you can pretty much open one of his books to any page and you'll find something on that page that will prove to you that he's done this trick a thousand times. And they said, no, you don't. And I go, have you got any Billy McComb books? The guy says, yeah, I go grab one. So he opens it up and it happened to be a trick that involved uh, cigarette papers rolled into Bill. Oh, I guess it was a torn and restored cigarette paper. Uh-huh. And what Billy had said was, is you don't want to put the duplicate one in your jacket pocket and hope that you're going to be able to find it and fish it out when you need it and you're ready to do the trick. He said, put two dozen of them in your pocket, and then you'll be able to get one right away. And I said, there it is right there. There's exactly what I'm talking about. The only way you find that out is by doing this trick a thousand times. And you have so many moments in your book where I see, now some of it you've been very explicit about. You say, here's a tip. Don't forget to do this. Or if you don't want this flopping all over the place, fasten a magnet into the back of your trousers to hang on to this you know, gizmo, so it doesn't go all over the place. But these are the things that are so valuable if you understand what you're looking for when you read a book like this. Yeah, um, these uh, everything in the book I've done uh, uh, has been in my show one time or another. Um, uh, some of it has been in my show and still is. Uh, uh, and I, I wanted to, I, I put down my full presentations not because I want people to copy them, although they're absolutely welcome to, I could care, um, but that, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but to give people an idea of the timing of some of the effects, uh, and I think that's very important. You uh, also uh, you also do a, th- a thing that I've always endorsed, which is you talk about putting a laugh on top of a move or just before a move, you need to accomplish something and you would prefer that everybody not be focused on that. So you put a good joke there and whatever it is you're doing just vanishes from perception. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there's many moments like that, that, that I noticed. Uh, uh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, I, I love humor uh, to, to relax people when something uh, dirty has to be done. Yeah, you um, well, there's just so much good stuff here. I mean, we could talk on and on and on. Um, the uh, the book is coming out and will be available in May. So we're sort of getting everybody excited about this a little bit early. Um, but it is on your website and we'll, of course, have a um, a link to that in the magazine. And you've been generous enough to let me excerpt one of the uh, one of the tricks, which um it's based on one of your tricks. Uh, well, it comes from uh, a thing I discovered, uh, uh, a way to fold uh, an origami matchbook. Um, and uh, the thing about that matchbook is it's extraordinary how good that thing looks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, you know, I haven't done that trick in many, many years. And, and I was using very crude Xeroxing technology. But with Photoshop and the excellent printers we have now, um, you can really get one that you can just set in front of people and they'll never for a moment imagine that it isn't a real ma- book of matches. Um, okay. And, and in, uh, in my particular handling, I actually 
take a match out and strike it, which further convinces people that it must be real. Well, you have a much smarter method for doing that than I did. Um, I wanted to be left with an ungaffed piece of paper. So (laughs) I had a thumb tip with a striking surface uh, glued to it so that when I picked up the origami match, I had a loose match in there. And when I picked up the origami matchbook, I could take the real match out, but I struck it against my thumb. That's great. Yeah, no, just to, you know, for that kind of a prover, but that's a fantastic prover. Uh, And, and there is something quite odd. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure you never saw me do this trick. I didn't do it that often. Um, no, I read about it. In yeah, you read it in the read about it before you would ever have seen it done. But there's a uh, a morphing quality to that when you start to unfold it because your brain has made the decision that this thing is real, and as it starts to be unfolded, it it's a real it's a paradigm shift that your brain has a lot of trouble wrapping itself around the first time they see it. It's uh, it's it's a fun trick, and I thank you for letting me. Uh, uh, included in the uh, in the newsletter, I should also mention that in, in addition to the really detailed instruction in the book, that you've also gone the extra mile to provide um, PDF files with um, artwork and uh, templates for things that need to be constructed. So there's really no excuse not to try to sit down and and manu- you know build yourself these props. Yeah, most of them are pretty simple as well, just a, a steel rule and a, a sharp uh, craft knife, and you can pretty much make them. Uh, I get a lot of people that go, well, I'm not crafty, I can't do, do it DIY, but it's, you know, uh, they're convincing themselves they can't do it. If you're patient and take your time and you're careful, anybody can do it. If I can, anybody can. Well, uh, <laughs> That's like Oscar Peterson saying, you know, if I can do this, anybody can do it. But uh, you you put a sharp knife in my hand, somebody's going to get hurt. So uh, (laughs) fortunately, Lisa, uh, my wife, is is extremely handy. So uh, she's she's just great. Uh, She's one of these people who, you know, I'll 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 see a thing. It could be anything. It could be a a can or a jar or something. And, and I'll look at it and have no idea how to open the stupid thing. And, you know, she'll go, Oh, well, it's, you just press here and you flip this and this thing comes over and I go, okay, fine. Don't, don't talk to me anymore. That's, that's fine. <laughs> that's know, just every magician will at one time or another have their great idea. They have something they go, Oh, this will be a wonderful trick. Well, uh, if it's something that doesn't exist, you have to make it exist and you need to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you go through my book and you build a few things, at least you'll have a good background on, on when it comes to your new trick, uh, uh, how to make it and how to approach making it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, you know, the only other book like this um, in recent memory is, uh, is Gene Anderson, who has gone to the trouble to try to make everything as clear as possible about the, you know, the stuff that he's come up with and how to build it and how to, put it together but um but uh you know the variety and the ingenuity i remember watching you do a trick it it wasn't your trick but i had never seen it before um the harbin card and bottle oh wonderful trick i'll tell you that trick fooled the crap out of me i i really had no idea how that stupid thing could have worked it was just stunning 
I mean, it's, it's, there's too much working against you on that. And then you have a great version of it. Um, it's not exactly that trick, but the appearance of uh, three chosen cards in three uh, whiskey bottles, whiskey bottles. Oh, yes. Yeah. Small pint sized uh, bottles, yeah. really clever and three different methods, which I, I mean, each one done a different way, which is fantastic. And uh, it's just great. It's yeah, that just makes great. a great open to that trick. Um, because it's fast, it's effective, and um, uh, and very visual. Yeah. Oh, the other trick that it, people should maybe look at first, just in terms of, let's see if I can make this, is the is the coffee trick that that oh, opens yeah. the book, uh, which is an, an un, a really unusual effect, and um, with a method that uh, you would be hard to backtrack on because the thing that's gaffed is not what you expect is gaffed uh in that i mean it's you know you really put the gaff on in front of the audience and they don't know it's there i mean that's really a fantastic thing um so anyway yeah that's um uh there's a uh, uh that's based on an okito principle uh and it's it's one that's been very underused i think there's a lot more can be done with that yeah and this this again is another idea of you see this elaborate prop decorated with chinese characters and you think well i'm i'll turn to the next page without spending the time to understand why it works and trying to figure out if you can apply it to uh to something else which is again great lessons yeah yeah exactly well uh martin it has been an absolute delight to spend a little time talking with you. Um, as the people will see, I am I am so enthusiastic about this uh, this new book. I think it's just great. I hope you sell a million of them, and I hope nobody does any of the tricks but me and maybe you. <laughs> um, but uh, it's just great. It's great to to hear your voice and to talk to you. Um, so thank you again and, and stay well and stay safe. And uh, we'll talk again down the road. Thank you very much, Martin. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. And thank you, uh, Michael. Uh, I enjoyed that so much. Thanks. This has been another conversation with close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to tell your friends like us on Facebook at Michael close magic. Follow us on Twitter at Mike close magic and visit our website michaelclose.com. If you'd like to help support these podcasts, you can do that at anchor.fm slash michaelclose. In that way, we can continue to bring you high quality content. Until next time, so long from the Great White North.